Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Episode 27. Yeah. I have nothing. No, 27. 27 is a cube, which makes it special. So when 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 you say 27 is a cube, do you mean like it it has a cube root? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> right, cube root. Yes. The cube root of 27 is 3. I haven't thought about cubed roots in a very long time. Well, with my children, I'm going through what they now call math facts, which when my first entered first grade or whenever they start working on that, I had to learn what a math fact was. I, I They didn't use that terminology when I was a kid. Did they for you? No. <laughs> so a math fact is basically like your plus and minus and multiplication and division tables. Oh. Yeah. So those are now known as math facts. So one plus one equals two is a math fact. It is a fact. It's not opinion. Yeah, but we also knew it was facts when I was in school. We didn't have to say so. (laughs) Well, I don't know why they changed the terminology, but that's what they call them now. And so my children think I'm very stupid because I didn't even know what a math fact was. (laughs) Never mind knowing what the math facts are. But so we have a lot of math in our house because we're doing our math facts. No, the thing that got me was sight words. Mm. That didn't exist when I was in school, but then my nieces and nephew, it did. And I was like, I think this is worse. (laughs) (laughs) It's pressure. Like my sister had to put so much work, not in school, because they were like barely learning phonics. It was just memorizing words by sight. Really? And it was just like, this is worse. This is a worse way to learn, right? But I mean, the whole idea of them is they're short, simple words that you can learn. Not that all words should be sight words. But they really struggled because they were like barely teaching phonics. Wow. Interesting. I was thinking, I think it was like New Girl, an episode of New Girl with Nick, where he's like, I don't know if I know how to read. Sometimes I think maybe I've just memorized a lot of words. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know. Everything is a brave new world in education. I'm just trying to keep up. Yeah. And then my brain has forgotten all of the math. And you best believe that calculator app is in use, even when it doesn't necessarily need to be. Well, yeah, because it's like you have a certain amount of working memory. Why would you use it for something like that when you literally have a calculator on you at all times now? Like, clearly, multiplication, division, addition, subtraction, like, that stuff is still in there. But if the numbers are big enough, it's like, well, why not just make sure I don't mess up? Totally. And why even, like I said, why even use the brain power that you could use for something else? Like, I don't know. And then I also use a lot of, oh, that's going to sound weird to say finger power (laughs) in contrast (laughs) to brain power. But I I will count on my fingers a lot. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, just as I'm like doing something. It's like, well, yeah, yeah, that's right. What are you doing where you just have to count to 10? Well, no, it, it like goes up higher than 10, but just like every once in a while making sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but I, I do. I don't know. I'll use I use now oftentimes Google Sheets or Excel, you know, so it's just as easy for me to open up a sheet and do a formula in there as it would be to use a calculator and. Sometimes it helps with things that are a little more advanced. I mean, I'm using that term lightly. (laughs) (laughs) More advanced arithmetic. (laughs) I mean, I would be lying to you if I said sometimes I'm not also singing the ABCs in my head as I'm like (laughs) trying to find something in in an alphabetical order. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. 
Well, and there are those little parts that are kind of tricky. What have we become? Know. God, this is boring. What are we talking? I know. But I mean, the alternative is we could talk about COVID some more, which I'm sure nobody wants to hear at all. War. We could talk about war. Uh, what else? All the Crypto. topics are so. <laughs> Crypto and NFTs. So terrible. Oh, uh, NFTs. Fuck you. Crypto. I honestly don't know what that is. I need. I have a friend who works in finance and he listens. So hi, Bri. I need you to explain crypto to me sometime because I don't even get it. NFTs are a hard fuck you. It's so stupid. It's money laundering, just like the art world. Yeah. It's idiots with too much money wasting. It's the equivalent of naming a star after you. I mean, am I wrong to to say that an NFT is just a digital image that has encryption and like a word mark a word like a watermark in it so you're almost there so the nft almost isn't even the image itself it's like the receipt proving that you own that digital image i mean how does anybody not think that's dumb it's so at least beanie babies you got a toy <laughs> That's my favorite. That's my favorite, like crypto analogy of all time. Now, Beanie Babies. It's real. No, not crypto. NFT. I'm getting confused. It's all gobbledygook. So I don't know if I told you. I know we talked last weekend, but I'm now deep into a fantasy about moving to Vermont and raising chickens. Have I shared this with you? I purposefully did not ask about your trip to Vermont <laughs> yet for this exact recording purpose. Yes. So I'm deep into this fantasy, which is taking me away from the world where NFTs are a thing and where I have to learn about something like crypto. I went up last weekend to look at property. So now, because I'm a, I don't know what, call me what you will. I'm like very smart technologically. I take to apps very quickly and I just have a facility for them, right? Brag. But sometimes, yes, total non-humble brag. It's Girl like- Girl boss, 21st century. <laughs> one of my superpowers. But sometimes I am like so overconfident about it that I do things like what I did last weekend when I went to Vermont. Which is, I left, my mom and I took a drive. It's the first time I've been outside of my, like, two-state area um, in two years. So we head off for the northern climbs, right? And we're driving. We're just shooting the shit. And I enter the nav. Um, and it's going, but we're not paying attention because we're, like, you know, 10 minutes from home. And then as we get maybe, like, 40 minutes away, still not outside of our kind of immediate area where I would drive without navigation usually. But it's telling me to get off the highway and like go on this side, very small highway. And I'm like, this is weird. But I'm like, okay, well, I'm looking at the map of Vermont and where we're going is kind of between the two big interstate thoroughfares that go through Vermont. So I'm like, mm -hmm. Maybe because of where it is, it's sitting weird, like we have to do this, or maybe it is the shortest route. But I look at the at the time, and it says five and a half hours. I'm like, five and a half hours? Redfin was telling me it was three and a half hours, and then I'm like, fucking Redfin, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because, of course, Google is right. So we're driving, we're driving, and I'm still like, this is weird. Like, I feel like if we were on a major highway, we could be going faster. <laughs> So fast forward, we're now like three hours in and it's time for us to pull over and have our highly strange like stop to go to the bathroom where I'm like shepherding my mom in and like not letting her touch things and stuff because I'm weird uh -huh. about COVID. <laughs> so then, you know, we're outside and I'm like, you know what, just for shits and giggles, I'm going to look and see if I have my like avoid highway mode on in Google. I'm like... I know that I don't because we were on the highway when we left Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, I'm just going to check it just, just, you know, because. So I check it and it's on. Of course, it's on avoid highways. I, I often use avoid highways just because I like, 
I like taking the scenic route when it's not near Canada. But then I'm thinking, but we were on the highway for the first part of the trip. Like, how could that? Maybe that was unavoidable highway. Well, here's what it was. We were so close to home, we just weren't paying any attention to the navigation. We were just driving. (laughs) So five and a half hours later, we got to Vermont, which should only be three and a half hours away from where I am. But after all of that, it was so beautiful. Just so beautiful. Quiet, babbling brooks, covered bridges, like just pure New England, beautiful village town stuff. So it really didn't dispel my fantasy of moving to Vermont (laughs) and raising chickens. (laughs) But I don't yet own any backcountry land in Vermont. But it did speak to you. It did speak to me. It was such a psychic relief to get away from home without the kids. I had like a whole day to talk to another adult about whatever, you know. So it's nice. It's the little things nowadays. But the good thing about long drives is that you get to listen to music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love listening to music, especially dark, angry music. Maybe some grunge. Some Maybe. 90s Seattle <laughs> grunge music making it into rotation. <laughs> I'm getting better. You have to admit now, like when you toss up the ball, I'm not like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm getting better. Someday I might actually be able to take it home. You did. I did a little. Okay. Thank you. I'll take that. <laughs> but as the name of the episode more than implies, we're talking today about Seattle musician Mia Zapata. And her too short life. Mia was born on August 25th, 1965 in Chicago, the third child of Donna and Richard Zapata, two media executives. The family settled in Louisville, Kentucky, and Mia grew up with older sister Kristen and older brother Eric in suburban comfort among private schools and golf clubs. From an early age, though, Mia was drawn to a different path. She was a musical prodigy, teaching herself to play the guitar and piano by age nine. She was influenced by punk rock as well as jazz, blues, and R&B, including singers like Bessie Smith, Billie Holiday, Janis Joplin, Ray Charles, Hank Williams, and Sam Cooke, whose untimely death we covered in episode 14. Mia, from a young age, carried a journal with her nearly everywhere. She jotted down her thoughts as well as short poems and little snippets of lyrics as they came to her. She was also a natural performer, and she enjoyed putting on shows for her family, with her on vocals and her brother playing air guitar. By all accounts, her family encouraged this creativity and her unconventional leanings, even though they were fairly conventional upper-middle-class. After graduating from high school in 1984, Mia enrolled in Antioch College, a liberal arts university in Ohio, which has been characterized as one of the top 10 non-traditional universities in the country by HuffPo. It's an aside, but I think it speaks to Mia's personality and values. Antioch was the fourth college in the country to admit African-American students on an equal basis as white students. Its first president was noted abolitionist and education reformer Horace Mann, And their motto is, quote, be ashamed to die until you have won some victory for humanity. So, like, no pressure. But seriously, I think the kind of school she chose gives us some insight into who Mia was and what was important to her. At Antioch, Mia could pursue her music seriously while earning a degree. And in this progressive environment, she thrived. She made many friends, and in 1986, she formed a band with three of those friends. Andrew Kessler, also known as Joe Spleen, Steve Moriarty, and Matt Dresner. The band was originally called the Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits, a reference to a Monty Python skit, but they soon shortened it to simply the Gits. The band's sound was punk, and they found a home in the lively Ohio alternative music scene, playing shows locally and around Ohio. Mia's captivating stage presence gained them a small but loyal following, 
1988, the band recorded and self-released their first unofficial official album, Private Loves. In 1989, the band relocated to Seattle, where the nascent grunge scene was just a few years from exploding into the mainstream. As they had in Ohio, the Gits quickly developed a loyal following within the underground scene, and Mia in particular became a central figure in the local club circuit, with many friends across lots of different groups and an almost cult following with fans. She was thoughtful and at times almost introverted, but she was also incredibly magnetic and attracted friends and admirers wherever she went. Many people close to her remarked on this dual quality that she had and her ability to move easily in different worlds. Mia formed close relationships with many of the female musicians in Seattle, including members of Seven Year Bitch, a local all-woman punk quartet who played a significant role in the formation of the Riot Girl movement, which began as a feminist response to the violence and misogyny that became more prominent in punk music in the mid to late 80s. But her friends, family, and bandmates insist that Mia's drive to create music was personal rather than political. Within a year of arriving in Seattle, the band embarked on their first international tour, And by 1993, after just four years in Seattle, the Gits were touring all over the West Coast. That summer, in July, they returned to Seattle for a short break before heading to Europe for a second international tour to be followed by more U.S. performances. But on July 7, 1993, this storybook ascent came to an end when Mia was found murdered in the early morning hours. Initial suspects in the crime included Robert Jenkins, her ex-boyfriend, a cab driver who had been in the area named Scott McFarlane. But media coverage and rewards offered immediately after led to tons of tips and a lot of wild speculation. The police, though, had no solid leads and not much physical evidence. They weren't even sure what Mia's final movements were that night or where she had been killed. So to go into a little detail about the the crime itself, the timeline of the attack was very short. Mia was last seen around 2 a.m. leaving a friend's apartment a block from the Comet Tavern in the Capitol Hill area of Seattle, where she had spent the evening with friends. And she was found at 3.20 a.m., a little over a mile and a half away, or what would have been about a 35-minute walk, by a sex worker who was walking around in the area. The friend she had been visiting said Mia told her she was going to leave her house, walk a short distance, and catch a cab home. But other friends suggested that she may have been heading to the apartment of her ex-boyfriend, who I said, Robert Jenkins, um, who happened to be former guitarist for punk band Officer Down. And that's why he had initially been under suspicion. But he had a solid alibi and was cleared almost immediately. In the days and weeks and months after the crime, the music community in Seattle really came together in a big way. And the, the most famous grunge bands of the day, Nirvana, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, they all became um, kind of spokespeople for the solving of this crime. And they raised awareness as well as a lot of money through the release of special songs and benefit concerts. With the proceeds of these activities, they hired a PI, and her name was Leah Heron, uh, to work on this case full-time. With that money, Heron was able to work pretty much nonstop for three years, and she went back to the beginning, and she interviewed everyone related to this case. She talked to people in the neighborhood, she talked to friends, she talked to family, everyone who could have any information And according to her, no one saw anything that night. And the case eventually went cold. But Heron continued to work on the case pro bono, even after the money from the fundraising had run out. Then, eight years later, there was finally some kind of break. You may or may not recognize the term polymerase chain reaction, But I'm going to go out on a limb and say that every single person listening to this episode right now is very acquainted with what it is. Polymerase chain reaction, or PCR for short, is a method widely used to quickly make millions of copies of a specific DNA sample, 
allowing scientists to take a very small sample of DNA and amplify it to create a large enough amount to study in detail. Of course, we now all know this technology so well because of COVID-19, but it was discovered in 1983 and developed over the years to become a tool in genetic and forensic testing. In 1993, however, techniques were still being tested and refined. When they found Mia's body, there was almost no forensic evidence left behind. They speculated that she had been left there and not killed there. And when the MEs examined her body in the autopsy, they only found one thing that they felt could be useful in the future hunt for her killer. And that was a very small saliva sample that had been found on her body. But in 1993, they feared that trying to test the saliva sample with their limited um, tools and techniques at the time would just destroy it and then they would have nothing. So they waited for years and they saved this sample in cold storage until PCR had advanced to the point where investigators felt that they had a good chance of getting a testable sample. And in 2001, they submitted the small sample for PCR amplification. It was a success and the sample yielded enough material to extract DNA for sequencing. The DNA results came back with a mixed sample. There was some of Mia's DNA in there, and then there was some DNA from an unidentified male. And investigators felt sure that that DNA would belong to her killer. So those results were entered into the National CODIS database, but in 2001, there were no hits. This brought investigators pretty much back to square one. But two years later, CODIS, which continually checks submissions against new entries, came up with a hit. Jesus Mizquia, a Florida fisherman who, turns out, lived three blocks from where Mia's body was found in 1993 and 1994, was a perfect match for this sample DNA. So now investigators had someone who was a very viable suspect the DNA match, I think, put the likelihood of, of uh, matching with another person at something like 1 in 1.5 trillion, something crazy. Damn. Yeah. So investigators went to Florida to, to get Jesus to talk to him, but when they got to his house, he was not there. So they waited, and within a couple of days, he returned from a fishing trip, and they arrested him. When they talked to him, he denied knowing anything about Mia. Um, he admitted that he had lived in Seattle for a time, but he claimed he had never met her. He had nothing to do with her. He didn't know anything about her. When he was then confronted with the DNA evidence, he had nowhere to hide and no way to explain why his DNA would be on her body at her murder scene. So from there, the resolution of the case was fairly straightforward. He was put on trial. He was convicted. Um, and he was sentenced to 37 years for his crime. A couple of years later, he, he made an appeal to the courts. And it was not on the facts of the crime, but a procedural, uh, procedural appeal. And his conviction was actually overturned for a time. Then the Supreme Court reinstated his conviction and his sentence several years later. The scumbag is now dead. He died last year in prison. But, you know, it doesn't feel totally like resolution because he certainly didn't spend as much time behind bars as you would hope for someone who committed a crime this heinous. Totally. You know, there, as always, I, I try to kind of give the facts of it in a straightforward manner and then kind of come back for what I lovingly call the wild speculating out of my ass part. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's just such an interesting case to me because I remember I was in college when this happened, you know, aware of kind of the grunge and Seattle scene. I had seen singles like everybody else at the time um, and was aware of kind of this Seattle scene. But I remember when I saw about this case on Unsolved Mysteries a couple of years later and there was a lot at the time, again, in this environment where no one knew anything about the way that her body had been had been left and the position of her body, 
again, it was about a mile and a half from where she was last seen, but it was in between on one side, a church and on the other side, a Catholic services building. Mm -hmm. And the way her body was positioned in the street was almost, she was laid out and her arms were out to her side, almost in the shape of a crucifixion or a cross. And so there was some speculation that there maybe was some kind of, um, you know, cultish or like ritualistic. Yeah. Component to it. And, you know, it was not a theory that was any crazier than any other theory, because again, there just was no information. No one saw anything. There was no forensics left. But then later, you know, it turned out to just, once they found their person and kind of got the background, it turned out just to be coincidence. He essentially had kidnapped her very shortly after she left her friend's apartment. It was believed that she was walking with headphones on Mm -hmm. and didn't even hear him coming. She also happened to be a pretty slight person. And so he kidnapped her. He raped her and beat her very badly before strangling her. Then he drove her inexplicably three blocks from where he lived. And they think that when he pulled her out of the car to place her on the street, that he grabbed her under her arms and just basically left her where she came out. And so her positioning was just kind of how she came out and the way that he pulled her out. Mm. But I think that's part of why it got, you know, when you see an unsolved mystery and a person is left in the shape of a crucifix in between a church, you know, like there were things about it that were kind of sensationalized, you know, Um, and it got a lot of interest. But it was so interesting to me, too, because the following year was my senior year in college And that's when the riot girl thing was really like taking off. At the time, I had no idea that it might in any way be connected to her murder. But in fact, a lot of what I saw going on on my own campus was coming from things that were coming out of her murder. Mm -hmm. Her friends, fellow bandmates, you know, women performers in Seattle were starting things, um, starting movements, the Home, Home Again movement. Um, that were resulting in take back the night marches and things that, you know, I saw and experienced in my life. Yeah. And like one of the awful pieces is I'm, I feel pretty confident this would still be an unsolved case if she was a sex worker. Oh yeah. And not a famous like burgeoning musician. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and one thing that is is interesting, too, and speaks to that, I think, is that when they found her, she was initially unidentified. She didn't have any identification on her body. She had her wallet was stuffed in her pocket, but it didn't have an ID in it. And so she came in as a Jane Doe. But as they were starting to examine her, the Emmy or an assistant in the office recognized her because he liked to go to the clubs and, and hear music. And so he knew who she was from performing and so yeah i don't think it's a stretch to say that you know there was an awareness that she was a performer and you know they weren't nirvana level but they were definitely probably the hottest band um in the underground scene and certainly i think you'll i'm sure you'll talk about this more but you know on the cusp of potentially bigger things Mm -hmm. yeah so i don't think that's a stretch at all and you know, I don't think it's a matter of people not wanting to or trying, but, you know, I think it's just subconscious bias when you're looking. It's just down to the foresight of the ME to take that sample, even though there wasn't the technology at that time to test it mm-hmm. and then to save it for eight years. And again, I don't know, yeah, if if those lengths would have been taken or even considered for someone in a more vulnerable and and kind of less respected what's the word i'm looking for position situation yeah yeah for sure yeah this is also that interesting timing that like those rare moments where i do think about our age difference yeah <laughs> where where you're saying like 
your thoughts when this crime happened and I was like I guess I was learning the alphabet and how to do addition (laughs) yeah yeah for sure I just you know I mentioned all of that too because I think we've talked about this before but one of the things that I like about what we do is finding all of these connections but it's so fascinating to me like you in our last episode It's like you knew of the ripples of it even before you knew of the case itself. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of where I'm coming from is I knew the ripples because I was doing Take Back the Night Marches. And I was, you know, I mean, in my conservative Catholic college kind of way, you know, um, fomenting against the patriarchy. But now looking back and seeing how very directly connected it was to not only the kind of larger misogyny and violence against women happening at that time, but specifically to this case in this murder. Yeah. Yeah. They're also tragic, but I do think it's important to remember, like not to wax poetic about true crime. Like there's a lot of exploitation as well, but it, it is, it's just important to remember. Yeah. Victims and events and... And, you know, I think in this case in particular, you know, it was very clear she was a private person. So there's not a ton of information out there about her and her life. And because I think her friends and her family continue to respect her desire for privacy even after her death. But it was very clear that she was a tremendously charismatic person, that she made friends easily and wherever she went. Um, I saw an article where her dad was talking about her and he talked about how she never judged people. And that was what he thought was the key to her being able to move between these two different worlds. I mean, she was brought up in a very kind of, um, you know, tennis and golf like kind of world, Mm -hmm. but she never was that never was who she was. She was this other kind of more edgy more progressive type of person but she didn't judge her family or her parents for being that way i saw an interview with her sister who talked about how she had come home for her wedding two years before her murder and she thought that she would kind of push back against wearing the laura ashley bridesmaid dress or whatever but Mm -hmm. she went along with it willingly she let them pin flowers all over her dreads and um, dye her hair to make her look more bridemaidsly. Um, but then when she went home, she took the dress with her and she took the bouquet with her. And her sister said that when she went to Seattle afterward, her friend unpinned from the wall the bouquet, which she had dried and kept hanging in her bedroom. So, you know, it's this nice combination of that's who she was and that's the life that she chose, but she didn't disparage people who chose other paths or mm-hmm. lived their lives in different ways. And I think that's kind of at the heart of why she was so popular. I think she brought that non-judgment to everything that she did. Yeah, I think that's kind of the, not to say that people don't live it 100% of every second of every day, but it's like humans are so complex. And it's like, yeah, especially a persona as you're trying to build a character for as a musician and fame. Mm -hmm. It's so easy to forget that people are nuanced and complicated, not necessarily in a bad way, but in a human way. Yeah, for sure. And I think, like you said, in in studying crimes that can very easily get lost in in the telling of it and I think that is really important to the friends and family that she left behind that she not be remembered just for the way that she died yeah and that people when they talk about her and think about her remember who she was and what she did and why people loved her so much Mm -hmm. well before moving into the culture side I have a very inappropriate for podcasting visual aid (laughs) of my uh, songwriting notebook from my teen, early to mid-2000s. Yeah. 
This is the oldest surviving one. So you would have been kindred spirits because that's exactly how she was. She always had hers with her. Yeah, reading through it, it's like, hooey. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think there's good stuff in here, too. Like, I'm not... eh, There's a couple embarrassing things, but yeah, I was like, I have that. (laughs) (laughs) So listener, I just showed Kirsten over the Zoom my... uh, an early songwriting notebook. Can we share pictures on social? Mm, maybe the outside. <laughs> there is, it's so, it puts you like so immediately back into a moment and like what I was trying to convey and the extreme angst mm-hmm. and all of those pieces. Extreme angst. That's the name of my cover band. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's very extreme. <laughs> like songs about leaving Mormonism and family troubles and I mean all to sorts be fair, you had a lot to be angsty about. <laughs> <laughs> the Mormon one I wrote as a breakup as though it was a person. Mm-hmm. And so I put like little notes in here too with the songs. And I like so explicitly spell it out. Where it's like, leaving you is about me leaving the Mormon church. I purposely wrote it to sound like a breakup so people would be able to relate to it. And if my parents could hear it, they wouldn't know what I was talking about. (laughs) (laughs) So cool. One quick reading from that song and then I'll get into the culture. You manipulated me right from the start. Thought you could control me from the heart. You never thought that I would get this smart. Whoa. You needed me to be so ignorant, so it would seem to me that you're important, and without you, I can't be content, but that's all lies. Mm. And the chorus was something like, I'm leaving you because I'm sick and tired. I thought that you were true, you little liar. Mm. Nothing you can do can put out this fire. Whoa, whoa, whoa. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. But anyway, into the pop culture side (laughs) of Mia's legacy, it felt right to start with the immediate aftermath. Mm -hmm. So as you mentioned, her friends created this group called Home Alive, and it was a self-defense group which organized benefit concerts and released albums with the participation of many bands, including some that you mentioned, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, but even like Heart and the Presidents of the United States of America. So really big names. And the nine people considered responsible for founding the organization are Valerie Agnew, Zoe Burmett, Greta Harley, Julie Haas, Laura Kidrugi, Jessica Lawless, Mish Levy, Christian Storm, and Stacey Westcott. So in addition to being fundraisers, the benefit shows were also used as a, quote, way to bring the music and arts community together around tragedy, violence, and oppression to find ways to proactively address these issues, end quote. So I took this from uh, one of their sites. Home Alive offers tools, not rules, to everyone seeking more safety and connection in their lives. So they promote consensual behavior and believe that we all have a responsibility to respect each other's boundaries and right to self-determination. Home Alive taught not only physical self-defense, but also verbal boundaries like saying no when you're uncomfortable, escape route techniques, and many others, including going to a therapist, writing in a journal, talking to friends, and exercising. So for the organization, self-defense meant to do anything that made yourself feel strong and able to take care of yourself in order to feel safer. Mm -hmm. So not just martial arts, but that was a part of it too. Mm -hmm. And kind of speaking of the evolution of the group, they also stated, quote, Most of the courses we found were quite expensive, and what they taught made no sense to us. We're musicians, artists, actors. We work in establishments late at night. They were telling us to change our lives to be safe, end quote. Mm -hmm. So that's what drove the group to create their 
own agenda with unconventional classes to cater to people with backgrounds similar to their own. And I mean, that's definitely a beautiful part of her legacy. Mm-hmm. Home Alive's first compilation album, Home Alive, The Art of Self-Defense, gained recognition worldwide. The track Leaving Home on the album, covered by Pearl Jam, peaked as 24th in mainstream rock and 31st in modern rock tracks on Billboard singles in 1996. And then, all the way in 2001, Home Alive released a second compilation album titled Flying Sidekick. And that album featured 17 tracks from various artists, um, and all of the proceeds from the album sales went back to Home Alive. The organization also received support from Joan Jett through a collaboration with Mia Zapata's former bandmates, The Gits. Mm-hmm. So following Mia's death, Joan and Bikini Kill frontwoman Kathleen Hanna co-wrote the song entitled Go Home, inspired by the case. Jett also included a message at the end of the music video for the song asking for any information that anyone had in regards to Mia's murder. Mm-hmm. After seeing the video, the remaining members of the Gits approached Jet about touring with the band, and she agreed because she'd been a longtime fan of the Gits. Mm-hmm. So they renamed themselves Evil Stig, which is Gits mm-hmm. Live Backwards. Mm-hmm. And they toured in early 95, playing a mix of Gits and Joan Jet songs, with a majority of the profits going toward the murder investigation itself. Yeah. So a self-titled album was issued later in the year, again, with the majority of the profits going toward the investigation. And kind of lastly, in terms of Home Alive, Mm -hmm. there's also the documentary Rock, Rage, and Self-Defense, an oral history of Seattle's Home Alive. And that was released in 2013. And then in 2014, documentarians Roz Thierin and Leah Michaels went on tour screening their documentary across the country and showed support for the feminist movement Yes All Women on their website in light of the 2014 Ila Vista killings. Mm. And that's not the only documentary. So in 2005, there was a documentary called, well, originally called The Gits Movie, and that was produced about Zapata's life, The Gits, and the Seattle music scene. And it was directed by Carrie O'Kane and produced by Jessica Bender. Its first showing occurred at the Seattle International Film Festival in May of that year. And then two years later, another version of the documentary appeared at the 2007 South by Southwest Film Festival. And then in 2008, the final cut, simply titled The Gits, was released theatrically in over 20 North American cities. And that was also on the 15th memorial anniversary of her death. And then the following day, it was released on DVD. So it was extremely well-received. NPR's Sarah Bardeen reviewed the documentary, saying, quote, Carrie O'Kane's new film succeeds as a documentary. She makes the viewer fall in love with her subject and then some, mm-hmm. end quote. And then Spin Magazine said, quote, The Gets tells a story as powerful as the music behind it, end quote. So speaking on the inspiration to create the documentary... Um, Director Carrie O'Kane said, another quote, Late one night in 2002, I was going through some books I'd purchased for research on a documentary I was working on at the time. In doing so, I discovered an organization called Home Alive. After reading further about this nonprofit collective, there was a name, Mia Zapata, and a dedication to her. What a cool name, I thought, and who was this woman? After surfing the net and finding dozens of sight about her, it was clear that Mia was the singer of the Gits, and sadly, no longer with us. A flood of emotions streamed through me as I read the articles and dedications and learned about what happened to Mia Zapata. The information I read ripped my heart out, yet, having not heard the Gits, I pined the rest of the night anticipating my journey to Tower Records. Finally, 9am approached and I blazed up to the store. There in the back of the store, sort of obscured by the latest music hype, I found it. Seafish Louisville, The Gits. My heart palpitated as the CD revolved in the player of my car. I sat there silently as a slowly building riff echoed out of the speakers, and then there was a voice. A beautiful, incomparable voice. I woke up this morning dizzy in my brain. That was all I needed to hear. 
to know that I was about to go on a journey of a lifetime. From that point on, it has indeed become a remarkable journey that I will never forget, end quote. While not specifically about Mia, she's also featured in the 1996 documentary Hype, directed by Doug Prey about the popularity of grunge rock in the early to mid-90s in the United States. It incorporates interviews and rare concert footage to trace the development of the grunge scene from its early beginning in neighborhood basements to its emergence as an explosive pop culture phenomenon. Mm. And that documentary currently has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes, and the song track features songs from The Gits, as well as Nirvana, Soundgarden, and many, many more. Mm. Staying in the realm of music, the critically acclaimed album Viva Zapata by punk band Seven Year Bitch was released in June of 1994, um, and it was a tribute to Zapata. Some of the songs on the albums address the murder directly, including the song M.I.A., which encourages vigilante justice for Mia's killer, as well as the song Sergeant's Death by Drug Overdose, also titled Rockabye. Mm. And the album cover features a painting by artist Scott Musgrove um, showing Mia wearing bullet sashes. And then rounding out the world of music, Seven Year Bitch wasn't the only group to offer dedications to Mia. Uh, The Portland, Oregon-based alternative rock band Everclear dedicated their 1993 album World of Noise to her. The California hardcore band Retching Red included a Gits cover of the song Spear and Magic Helmet on their album Get Your Red Wings. And the alt-country band Richmond Fontaine also have a tribute song um, entitled The Gits. Then kind of moving from the grunge stage to the theater, in February 2013, a play called These Streets uh, debuted, and it was inspired by the stories of and featuring music by Zapata and other female musicians in Seattle. It's an unconventional theatrical play and history project inspired by women rock musicians during those famed grunge years. Spearheaded by rock guitarist Greta Harley, a faculty member at Cornish College of the Arts and guitarist who played in several bands during the era. Also, Sarah Rudinoff, an actress, writer, and the Stranger Genius Award winner, and Elizabeth Kenny, actress and award-winning playwright. So These Streets is inspired by over 40 interviews conducted with and about the many women rockers who were integral to the Seattle music scene during this legendary era. In addition to the live theater piece, oral histories are being filmed and will be included in the library at the University of Washington. Lastly, I felt it was important to talk about the impact Mia's death caused within the Seattle community. Mm Mm-hmm. So the Seattle Times marked the murder as the moment, quote, the Seattle scene lost its sense of invincibility, end quote. So writer, artist, and activist Kristen Storm recalls Mia's death as a reality check. And in an interview with her, she said, quote, they were all very tough people. And as a group of women, they are all really strong, outspoken, and hard-hitting very opinionated women, and that perception of we're not victims at all in any way, and this can't happen to women that aren't victims. And I think Mia's death shattered that myth for us. It showed that it happens to all types of women, end quote. Mm -hmm. So Mia's often cast as a symbol for feminist activism, a martyr, and in some cases, even an angel. Mm. Expanding on this, Margaret O'Neill Gerard who wrote her thesis on Zapata, believes she's an example of women artists being classified based on their perceived motivations behind their art. So the drummer in the band wrote that Mia wanted to relate to people on a personal level in her lyrics rather than on a political level. And it's been speculated that this association may be due to her presence as a charismatic female musician in the Northwest who was performing throughout the emergence of the riot girl movement and helping to inspire the movement. It's clear to me that Mia Zapata and this terrible crime and murder has permanently affected the world of pop culture, especially in the Seattle grunge scene, which has impacted, you know, American and global music in general. The only thing that remains is what works might she inspire next. Definitely. And I think it's just a list that will continue to get longer because 
again, that charisma um, that she had on top of her talent just, you know, endears her to so many and I think will continue to. Absolutely. Yeah. What a sad story. And again, I think it just underscores this idea that even if you don't know what the ripples are, uh, so often we're affected by the ripples that come out of crime and and we just don't know enough detail to kind of connect the dots. Mm-hmm. But it kind of goes to this fundamental thesis or hypothesis that we have when we started this podcast that, you know, understanding and metabolizing these terrible events is just something that is central to the human experience in a way. But I think this case really highlights, and we talked about this a little bit last time, the line between sensationalizing and rubbernecking and and the kind of like murder porn aspect mm-hmm. and how how do we remain mindful of being on the right side of that line and i hope that we did it today but you know i think this one in particular brings home you know what you said we're talking about human beings individuals here and you know, in this case, it happens to be someone who had some notoriety and some standing publicly. But, you know, at the end of the day, she was someone's sister and someone's daughter and someone's friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the legacy, it's not just songs and documentaries. It's nonprofits and self-defense and women's self-reliance. And there's just so many pieces as to... What follows? I mean, nothing exists in a vacuum. Yeah. Everything is impacted by the world. And I think that's sort of where I was trying to get to earlier when I sort of trailed off on my point of like, it's important to look at these things to understand how and why the world has changed. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And and I do think that this was a watershed moment, even though it maybe doesn't get that kind of recognition in the larger society. I think this was a watershed moment, especially for a lot of Gen X women. This this was a a hard break in in the way we thought about the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whew. Well, with that, listener, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us out. Plus, we'll read five star reviews on an upcoming episode. This has been a Facts from Janet production. 